Hello and welcome to the Flame and Grenade Serial Podcast. I am the author reading the book, not a professional voice actor, which I'm sure you've figured out by now, but I appreciate you getting this far and I hope you're enjoying the book. Remember, if you'd like to purchase the ebook, you can at Amazon. And now let's get to it. Chapter 85. Tarmina, Sicily, Italy. Chung's phone rang, and Ping answered with a grunt. Sung gave him the news about the two Italians, and Ping hung up without saying a word. He turned to Chung, who was lying face down on the massage table with hot stones resting on his spine. The Italians are taken care of. Good. Is Sung going back to the church to watch Antonelli and see if the Americans return? Yes. Good, good. Chung relaxed, and Ping went to his room. Ping took off his formal robes until he was only wearing the silk shorts underneath. He sat cross-legged at the foot of the bed and thought about Chung's plan. Chung was a very was a very smart and diabolical man, and Ping enjoyed his status as Chung's personal assistant. But in this quest, Ping believed Chung was going too far. The power should be left alone, for use, for use only when mankind truly needed it. It was for desperate times and would manifest itself when needed. A man cannot harness the power. Ping knew he should warn Chung, but Chung would never listen. Once he set his mind on something, he never wavered. Ping expected the plan to blow up in Chung's face, and he needed a plan if that happened. The world could never know of Chung's failure, or if even worse, if he died, the world could never learn the truth. Ping would have to take over Yongri Enterprises and continue the business as if nothing ever happened. He had big plans should that occur. Ping thought Yongri could be even more successful if they quit the illegal operations the illegitimate business interests. Ping would use the power of Yongri to do good, to bring cheap energy to the world. The profits would naturally follow. Ping had a plan. He was a patient man and knew his time would come. Chapter 86, Trekistani, Sicily, Italy. Heinrich looked at his watch, surprised at how late in the afternoon it was. It was too late to trek up to the mountain to search for the clearing. That was a full day's work, and he didn't want to be rushed by the oncoming darkness. When they returned to the hotel, he decided to go for a run. Archie and Zyra had invited him to dinner that night with Archbishop Antonelli. He hadn't really been invited, but after learning of Antonelli's part in the aftermath of the massacre, Heinrich was willing to overlook his manners for a chance to speak with the man. He changed into shorts and a foosball jersey of his favorite team, Bayern Munich, and laced up his running shoes. He decided not to run with his iPod. Instead, he wanted to listen to the sounds of the Italian city as it awoke from Riposo. He did some jumping jacks in his room to warm up, followed by a quick stretch. Downstairs, he took off across the piazza to explore some of the streets he had yet to visit. He was a bit out of shape. Winters in Bavaria are harsh, and he rarely used the treadmill in the den, maybe three times a month. He hated running in place and became bored easily. Running was a sport for the outdoors, a chance to see the streets and breathe the fresh air. He coughed. The fresh air in the small alleys wasn't so fresh when a three-yield Piaggio truck rumbled past spewing exhaust fumes. That truck probably hadn't had an emissions test in 30 years. The truck was stopped at the next intersection, and Heinrich waited to see which direction it would turn, and then went the opposite way. After about 20 minutes, his legs started to burn. He turned back in the direction of the hotel. He estimated he was four or five blocks away when he passed a man rolling up the rusted metal security door to a little shop with articles produced on Mount Etna. He stopped running and bent over, hands on his knees, to catch his breath. In the window he could see honey from a place called Zaffarina, and pistacchio pesto from Bronte. There was also wine from the Gambino winery. He checked in his pocket where he always carried his ID and a credit card, even on a run. 
He didn't want to be the unidentified body in the morgue because he wasn't carrying ID should something happen. He felt bad for entering the store sweaty and stinky, but the old man seemed happy for the business. Heinrich bought a bottle of wine to bring to dinner that evening and thanked the man. He walked the rest of the way back, letting his muscles cool down. He was tired, but a good tired. With the hike from yesterday and the run today, Heinrich figured he would probably be sore in the morning, but that was okay. That meant he was starting to get back into shape. Chapter 87. Trecastani, Sicily, Italy. Sung watched the front doors of the hotel as a man in running shorts, sweating, walked in with a bottle of wine in his hand. That was odd. Generally, people don't buy wine while on a run. When they arrived back in Trecastani, they immediately went to the church. Sung's partner waited in the car while Sung went to the side door. He stepped inside and found Antonelli busy working behind the altar. Antonelli looked up and Sung scowled. He just wanted Antonelli to understand Sung was watching. They sat in front of the church for an hour to see if Antonelli would react to Sung's visit and leave. When he didn't, they changed surveillance locations to the hotel to watch for the Americans. There had been nothing in the car he searched the night before, and Sung was anxious to get into the hotel room. It had been a busy day. They parked to notice the two Americans at a gelateria in the piazza. They left the store, each licking gelato from a sugar cone. Sung's stomach growled. The Americans sat outside on a bench until they finished their cones, then went inside the hotel. Sung saw a light come on a minute later and decided that must be their room. His suspicions were confirmed when he saw the man open the curtains and sit in a chair next to the window. What was he doing there? Fifteen minutes later, the woman came to the window, looked out over the square, then closed the curtains. The runner arrived a few minutes later, and Sung watched the windows. The light in the room next to the Americans turned on. Sung counted the windows from the end of the building and memorized which one belonged to the Americans. "'Go get me something to eat,' he ordered his partner, who grumbled under his breath but didn't argue. As soon as they left for dinner, he would search their room, discover why they were really at the church." Chapter 88, Trecastani, Sicily, Italy. When we got back to the hotel, I went online to see if Robert had sent me anything, and then remembered he was on a flight out to see us in person. We would see him and Ashley tomorrow. We had a couple of hours before dinner and needed to catch up on some sleep. Zara began massaging my shoulders, and I shut down the, ne the tablet and let my chin fall to my chest. She needed my shoulders and neck. You're tight. Uh-huh. Put the computer down and lie on the bed. I wasn't going to argue with that. Zara pulled my shirt over my head and I collapsed face down onto the bed. She straddled me and began working on my muscles. Her fingers were surprisingly strong and she expertly worked on the knots in my back. I fell asleep and awoke later, gradually becoming aware of the room around me. I was still on my stomach and I was so relaxed I didn't want to move. I heard, I heard the sound of fingernails on a keyboard and I opened my eyes. Zara was sitting by the window working on the tablet. The curtains were closed, but I could tell the windows were open as the breeze billowed the curtains into the room. It was a cool breeze that felt terrific on my bare back. I turned onto my side and watched Zyra silently as she typed. She was concentrating on the screen and didn't at first notice I was awake. The filtered light from the curtain out outlined her body with a ring of light. There was a faint glow on her face from the computer screen. I glanced at the clock on the bedside table. We were due for dinner in about 45 minutes. I yawned and Zyra turned. How'd you sleep? Like a log. Thanks for the massage. I owe you. No problem, and I will collect. Anything good? I asked, indicating the computer. Nah, I was just chatting with Emily to let her know we were okay. She said she thanked everyone at the wedding and made up some excuse for our quick exit. I didn't even think of that. We didn't even thank people for coming. That's okay. That's why you have me, to remember all of the social niceties you boys always forget. She stood, 
placing the tablet on the chair and sat next to me on the bed, she began to lightly scratch my back with her fingernails. Mmm, I got goosebumps as a breeze blew in from the window. It's time to get ready for dinner, Zyra reminded me. Get up, sleepyhead. I sat up and Zyra laughed. Your hair is sticking up all over the place. Go take a shower. Yes, ma'am. Zyra wore a knee-length flower print dress with heels and she wore a single strand of pearls. She put on a light sweater to cover her shoulders and to remain modest in the church. When I got out of the shower, a pair of new slacks we bought at the mall, along with a dress shirt, was set out on the bed. I broke my new Italian shoes out of the box to finish off the outfit. Zyra went into the bathroom to apply her makeup and brush her hair. I walked up behind her and put my arms around her waist, giving her a hug and kissing her on the back of the neck. Hey, she laughed, squirming. We're going to be late. I raised my hands in a gesture of innocence and laughed. Zyra grabbed her purse and I grabbed the tablet. It was a tight fit, but I was able to slide it into the purse. I grabbed the two badges and put one into each pot pocket. As an afterthought, I also grabbed the printouts we made earlier that day. We left our room at the same time as Heinrich, who was wearing slacks, a light crew neck sweater, and a cotton blazer. He was carrying a bottle of wine, which reminded me we didn't have anything. Zyra noticed and said, Don't worry, the hotel clerk has a box of pastries for us. I went down and asked him to pick up something while you were sleeping. See, what would you do without me? My arm was around her waist, and I squeezed. We decided to walk to the church. It was a very comfortable night. It had cooled down consider considerably, but I could still feel the heat of the day radiating from the cobblestone street. We chatted with Heinrich about Germany and the passion play of Oberammergau. Heinrich told us how he, as a child, had participated in the production. He wasn't invited back on stage the next go-round. We all laughed together and forgot for a moment the badges or our shared history. Heinrich's new job during the production was to hang flyers. That was as close to the stage as he was allowed. When we arrived at the church, we walked around to the back door as Archbishop Antonelli had instructed, and I knocked. A porch light turned on and the door cracked open. A young priest peered out. We are here to see the Archbishop, Zyra explained. The priest opened the door wide and walked down the hallway. We followed him, Heinrich closing the door behind us. He led us through a storage room, shelves stacked with dusty boxes, and into a large ornate dining room. He held out his hands and we gave him the wine bottle and the plate of pastries. The room was long, with two chandeliers, one hanging, hanging at, at each end. A fireplace along the left wall was made of fine marble, and the dark wooden mantle was decorated with ornate carvings. The table was set for three. The archbishop wasn't expecting Heinrich. Heinrich went directly to the mantle and ran his fingers over the carvings. Professionally, he approved of the work and wanted to know the history behind the beautiful piece and its artist. Along the right wall hung three paintings, lit by wall sconces. The painting depicted peaceful pastoral scenes, the smoking mountain in the background. Zara guessed they were from the 17th century, but that was just a guess. She, she really wasn't an expert. A door opened on the far side of the room, and Archbishop Antonelli entered. He was wearing standard black pants and shirt with a white Roman collar. He looked curiously at Heinrich, who approached him about his head. Your Excellency, Heinrich said. Father Antonelli, it is good to see you again. I smiled and shook his hand. Sarah greeted him next and introduced Heinrich. This is Heinrich Müller. I apologize for inviting him as well, but we met in our hotel and discovered a common interest. Antonelli seemed annoyed at the uninvited guest, but intrigued by Zyra's introduction. It turns out his father was one of the German officers who first discovered the massacre. He also met and was with, with one of the three surviving Carabinieri officers up north when he died. At this, Heinrich fidgeted uncomfortably, and Zyra smiled warmly at him. Oh? This caught Antonelli's attention. After a moment's thought, he continued, Yes, I remember. Unterfeld Webel Müller. You knew my father? Heinrich asked excitedly. Yes, of course. 
He and his friend, they would secretly meet with me for confession and mass. They were good men. I am very pleased to meet you, Heinrich. The priest who had answered the door appeared in the room with a pitcher of wine. Antonelli asked him to set out another place on the long wooden table, and I went to pour us each a glass of wine. I offered a glass to Zyra first. Is the rule ladies first or priests? I don't know. Well, whatever. The other priest entered with an extra place setting, and when he finished, Antonelli invited us to sit. The meal was delicious, made with fresh vegetables and homemade pasta. The light olive oil was fantastic, and Antonelli told us it came from a monastery located about an hour away. It blew away any oil you can buy in the States. We talked about the history of the church and Antonelli's service to the church in Sicily throughout the years. He had actually led a pretty interesting life. When dinner was finished, Antonelli invited us to retire to a library in the adjoining room. The walls were lined with books, mostly in Italian and, in, and Latin. There were new texts and extremely old volumes. Robert would love it in here. There was a couch and two cushioned chairs in the room and we took a seat. The other priest, I really should have asked his name, came in with coffee and then left us shutting the door behind him. So you would like to know about the massacre and about your father, Antonelli began. He spoke in very good but heavily accented English so we could all understand. I decided he needed to know what we had been up to, and I explained that we met and spoke with Alessandra. He was surprised and asked how she was doing. He was older than Alessandra, but fortunately was not stricken with the terrible malady, Alzheimer's. I told him that Alessandra was confused, but remembered the past with great clar clarity, and she spoke highly of Father Antonelli. You were really here then? Sarah asked. Antonelli chuckled. Yes, yes, I am that old. It was my very first assignment, and I was very young. It was an interesting time. We were a very poor town, and when the Nazis came in, they took what little food we had to feed their soldiers. They forced the townspeople to house soldiers in their homes. I am sorry to say, but as in all wars throughout history, some of the Nazis took advantage of our young women and young girls. Our young men were off to war, but there were good ones, men like your father, Heinrich. He came to me when he could. Hitler was the only religion allowed, and he had to sneak into the church for confession and communion. He never spoke of his time here. Thank you. He had a friend. Franz, I think his name was? Yes, I met him when I was a boy, but he died in a car accident. Those two were always together. It was them who discovered the massacre. So what happened? Zara asked. Well, let me start from the beginning. Just after the Allied invasion, the Germans were very busy preparing their defenses. We were still technically allies with the Nazis, but everyone knew it wouldn't last. The Nazis didn't trust us and always acted like an occupational force instead of friendly allies. They refused to work with our army, and the high commanders were always German. So about a month before the massacre, a group of Carabinieri officers came to town. They told the townspeople they were there to work with the Germans to prepare defenses in case of an Allied invasion. But that was just a story. The people in town believed them. They were just excited there were some Italians who were actually going to work with the Nazis. I believe they thought this would make the Nazis treat them better. I imagine the Nazis didn't really want their help, I said. True, but they treated the Carabinieri just like they did all of the other Italians, like backwards peasants. It was maddening, really, and the entire town was praying the American and British would liberate them. I spoke with the head of the Carabinieri unit, and he admitted to me they were there to perform a secret mission. Word had traveled to Rome through our network of spies that Hitler was searching for the Pietra Omnipotente. I had heard of it, but in all honesty didn't really believe it existed. To prove it to me, the officer went outside and returned with the hats of two of his men. He unpinned the badges from their hat and his and, and, his and held the badges together. It was like they came alive. 
They snapped into an orbit circling around each other, and there was an energy coming off of them. I couldn't explain it, but I was convinced it was real. The officer explained Hitler had finally traced the origins of the power to the rock and suspected it was hidden somewhere in Italy. Half of it, of course, was hiding in plain sight, while the other half was still hidden in the mountain. The officials in Rome decided it was time that the two halves be reunited so they could be relocated somewhere far outside of Hitler's grasp. He claimed an American officer with the OSS. The OSS? Sarah interrupted. The Office of Strategic Services. It was the World War II version of the CIA. They worked covert ops behind enemy lines and tried to help resistance movements in France and Italy. How do you know all of this stuff? Uh, W.E.B. Griffin books? Who? Oh, never mind. Sorry, father. He smiled. Where was I? Right. So he claimed the OSS officer was going to mount an operation to get the stone out of the country and to a secure location. He had his doubts, though. In an effort to keep the stone away from one government, they were planning to give it to another. Power is an irresistible thing, and he didn't want FDR to decide to use the stone either. So he came to you for help, Heinrich opined? More with a proposal. He said he thought the church would be better suited to handle the rock. He believed the power was that of God, and it rightly belonged with the church. I reminded him of the popes in previous centuries who also became drunk with power. It felt sacrilegious to say such things, but I wanted to help him make the right decision. He left to think it over. Then the day came. The Nazis were down the mountain building bunkers and pillboxes and only left a few men behind. Your father, Heinrich, and his friend were tasked with patrolling the mountain trails. The Germans had this paranoid fear an invading army would suddenly appear, flanking them on the mountainside. I mean, it was a bad idea, I guess, but they were a bit extreme. Anyway, the Carabinieri squad set out for the cave, and I came to find out later, so did Alessandra. When they reached the clearing just outside the entrance to the cave, they were attacked by the monster. What was it? Just a minute, he continued. There had always been rumors that a beast lived on the mountain, very similar to the rumors of Bigfoot or the Yeti. When Alessandra came to me in a panic, she described the monster. Right, Cyrus said, pulling out the print, print out of Alessandra's diary. She called it the Monster Monkey? Antonelli looked surprised that we had a copy of the diary, but he continued. Uh, right, well, I went to the convent to speak to the Mother Superior. She was very old. At least it seemed to me at my young age, and I asked her about the monster. She had lived in Trekistani all her life, and her family before her. She sat me down and told me the story. Everyone here knows about the great earthquake in 1669. Trekistani was actually saved from the eruption. However, ash fell for days. It got into everything, their food, their water. The town feared they would all die, even though they were spared from the lava flows. A shepherd showed them to an underground spring inside of a cave. It was in the front room and the water was crystal clear. However, the man refused to accept the gratitude of the town, instead claiming the disaster was all his fault. Eventually, when the air cleared and the normal water supplies returned, the people forgot about the shepherd saving their lives and instead mocked him and claimed he was crazy. I jumped in. But didn't he hand over the stone to the priest here in this church? Yes, he did, but the damage had already been done. He had broken the Pietro Omnipotente and stolen it. He was ignorant and could not control its power. The priest offered to take the pieces, and eventually they became a part of the church, until one day, in fear the stones would be discovered, they were melted and cast into flaming grenades. An elite unit of officers sworn to protect the secret was formed. The officers held normal posts within the organization, and the badges were scattered throughout Italy, but they all lived by their oath. 
How did they melt down a stone? Heinrich queried. Good question, and the best explanation I have is that they determined it was a mixture of cooled lava and a metal alloy. It required amazing temperatures to melt, but it did. How they thought of trying it, I have no idea. Why didn't the priest just return the pieces to the cave in the first place, Ira wondered. Well, that is the question, isn't it? I think his motives were pure. After the disaster of the eruption, he wanted to prevent anyone from following in the shepherd's footsteps and unwittingly causing another disaster. I, ha I had the same question you all have, I suspect. What happened to the shepherd? We all nodded. He was cursed. He had to guard the cave until the stone was reunited and whole again. But it still isn't together, so who is guarding it now, I had to ask. Well, he is. The curse had no time limits. He has been living in the cave for centuries with no human contact and no purpose other than to guard the cave. Over time, he became more and more like the animals in the mountains. He lost the ability to speak more than a word or two and attacked anything that came near. He stopped bathing, stopped cutting his hair, stopped everything human. That is why Alessandra called him a, mon a monkey. And he is still there? I asked. Yes. After the horrible massacre, I knew something had to be done. Those officers were trying to rejoin the parts of the stone. They would have broken the curse. But the shepherd was so far gone, he didn't even realize it. So after the massacre, I ventured up to the cave. Weren't you scared? asked Zyra. <clears throat> well, yes, actually I was terrified. The town was poor and we didn't have much, but I brought him a small gift, a shiny metal top. I placed it on the stone in front of the cave and stood back. Eventually he came out of the cave. He growled at me and I stepped back further. He snatched the top and disappeared back into the cave. I just kept coming back, bringing gifts and talking quietly to him. Eventually he came outside and stayed outside. I still visit him, although it is harder now I am down in Catania. So what happened with the massacre? Heinrich prodded. When the Nazis returned, your father briefed the commander on what happened. He just laughed and said he wasn't surprised the Italians got themselves killed. The townspeople asked for help in retrieving and burying the bodies, but he refused. He said we could go up and bury them there. It was all a joke to him, so we did. We gathered together and went up to the mountain and went to work. <clears throat> it was horrible. The bodies had been out the whole day and night. I will never forget the blood, the smell. Oh, my. There was a clearing just below where the cave is, and we dug the graves there. I was one of the only ones who knew the secret, so on a whim I decided to do what the Carabinieri commander wanted. I gathered all of the badges. I told the people I was going to return the badges to the families. I wrapped each one individually and carried them back to the church. I met with the mother superior, and we decided I would take five and she would take five. I hid them in the church, and they've been there ever since. At this, I decided it was time. I pulled one badge from each pocket <clears throat> and placed them on the table. I unwrapped one while Zyra unwrapped the other. Antonelli immediately recognized him, and he walked to the bookshelves. He pulled out a wooden box and set it on the table. I finished unwrapping my badge, and the archbishop pulled a badge from the box. There were three there on the table. Heinrich gasped, and I looked over to him, see him fumbling in his pockets. He pulled out a handkerchief, and there on the table was the fourth. You? Your, your dad? Zara stammered. Yes, I, I found the badge last week in a hidden compartment in one of my dad's carvings. He got it from the dying Carabinieri officer and kept it. Where did you get the second badge? It's not Officer Moretti's, is it? It was the Archbishop's turn to ask questions. That's a really long story, Father, but bottom line is I found it. No, I was led to it, and now it's here. He was deep in thought. That's interesting. Usually the badges are impossible to find, but if what you say is true, it found you. 
We had four, and I looked expectantly up at Antonelli. He shrugged and then shook his head. I honestly don't know where they are hidden. There was so much going on that week that I hid them and created notes where they were hidden. Then the Allies invaded, and by the time things calmed down, I could no longer find them and had no idea where they were hidden. I suspected there was more to it than that, and I said so. Uh, I think maybe the badges hid themselves. We are talking about unfathomable power, after all. Yes, that is what I believe as well. So what do we do? We have to finish the job and return those badges to the cave, Cyrus said. She was getting excited now at the prospects. I admit I was too, but I was also a little afraid of what could happen. We had to get past the shepherd, after all. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Flaming Grenade Serial Podcast. Please subscribe in whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, and I will see you at the next episode. Thanks for listening.